All right. Thank you, Zach and the worship team. Worship, uh, God is worthy. Amen? Of our worship. I am uh, glad to be here again. Seems like just the other day we were doing this, right? And just the other day when we did this and we opened up God's word, God spoke. Lives were touched. Decisions were made, and, and, and I pray that that's the exact same thing that happens today. I'll tell you that you're an answer to prayer just by being here. Uh, I've been praying for you. I know the staff prays, and then uh, it's a group of men that get together in my office early this morning, and one of the things we pray is that people will clearly make a decision to get up and be here. And so you are an answer to prayer, and uh, I'm glad that you're here. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Somebody reached out to me this week and they said, Jeff, we've been waiting to get to the Ten Commandments for what seems like years. And I'm going, has it really been that long? And so I went back to my notes and I keep a notebook, a hard copy of every sermon I preached, period. We started the book of Exodus on January the 31st. Wow, yeah. That's six months, and we're just now halfway. And I have enjoyed every step of the process. And today, yes, we do finally. I think on that first Sunday, I said, you know, so many times we think about the book of Exodus, and we immediately think about the Ten Commandments. Well, I'll tell you what. Had we not spent six months getting from where we were to right here, I don't know that the Ten Commandments would mean as much to us as I hope they're going to in the time that we get through them. You notice I didn't tell you how long it's going to take us to get through them. Um, I, I honestly don't know. I'm, I'm one of those pastors. I don't have six months of preaching laid out. I know what I'm preaching today, and tomorrow I will start preparing for what I'm preaching next week, and, and I think it's a miracle of God that God can take me in a week and put his word in me and then bring it out. These people that can know their sermons three weeks, four weeks, six months ahead of time, I guess I'm jealous or suspicious. I don't know which one, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. Um, as you are aware, as you turn, did I tell you where to turn? Exodus chapter 20, go to verse 3. We'll be there in just a minute. As you're well aware, and it's happened for about the last 10 months, there are no more Fridays in the Rasnick household. And you're going, well, if you're new here, you're going, I don't understand what he just said. Well, we have renamed Fridays as Addie Day, our granddaughter, who was born on September the 28th. So every week for almost 10 months now, we have driven down on Fridays, the day where Angela and I both seek to take that day off. And we've driven down to visit with Caleb and Laura and Addie. And nearly every week we have gone for almost 10 months, we've taken her a book. And uh, we take that book, and we read to her that book. And when she was one week old, you, you say, Jeff, you took her a, big, a book when she was one week old. Yes, and I read it to her. And she helped me turn the pages. No, she didn't, that one week old. <laughs> I almost got into grandfather speak there for just a second. So, and then we date the book, and we go to Addie from Lolly and Pops, and we put the date on there. And every week we go, we take her a book. And we read them, and then sometimes we read a bunch of books that we've taken before, and we're getting to a really sweet age where books are something that she wants to be a part of, and, and, uh, and that's really cool. She has, um, she's 
creating a little bit of a library of books, as you can imagine. That's almost 40 weeks, and we've probably not missed three weeks taking a book. So she's got quite a bit of books already. We are always on the hunt then as uh, parent, grandparents with books of for new books. And we have some books already stacked up at home that were just not ready for her yet, the time. And so we're looking forward to those. And we're always looking for more. I started thinking about stories and books this week. And, you know, if you're going to be grandparents to take books, we were parents that had books too. And so we still have stacks and stacks and stacks of kids' books at our home from our own kids, own kids. But I thought about some stories and all these had a simple thing in mind. I thought about the Wizard of Oz and how there was a path to follow in the Wizard of Oz if you were going to get to the right place. And we all know that path was called the Yellow Brick Road. Okay. Then I read about uh, a, a series of stories written in 1812 by the Brothers Grimm. One was Hansel and Gretel, and you remember that. They, they took Hansel and Gretel out into the woods and leave them deep in the woods, but Hansel was smart. He took a pocket full of white rocks, and he would drop them every now and then, and those rocks led him back home when his parents were seeking to leave them deep in the woods. Now, they took them again, and he couldn't find any rocks, so he left breadcrumbs, and that didn't work out well for him. The story says that the birds ate all the breadcrumbs. And then Thursday morning, I recalled a book that I brought. It's called Milo and the Magical Stones. Now, this is a really cool book, and I'm not going to read it to you, uh, but I am going to tell you about it, that it demonstrates it's a really cool book. It's called a two-ending book, which means that you read through the first number of pages, and it is one story. And then we would read with our boys growing up, and you get to this page right here, and you can see that there's this top that goes from full pages to half pages, and then there's this bottom half. And it says right here, the happy ending. And it says down here, the sad ending. And as the boys, we would read this. And when we get to this point, they got to choose which ending we wanted to go to. But these were smart boys because they knew after we got done reading, it was probably time to go to bed. So we'd read the sad ending. And then, Daddy, can we read it again? And then we'd read with the happy ending. But this book demonstrates, at least in my mind and my heart, a process that creates choice and decision in the stories of life, a path that we get to choose. And so this is just a really cool story because at the ending of the book, based upon the choices made by the characters, you either ended up having a happy ending or a sad ending. Do you know that's always true in life? We're always walking down this path that dependent upon the choices that we make, the ending is either going to be happy or sad. And God has an intended ending for each one of us. Amen? So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 20 with that backdrop. And hold on. We're getting ready to start the Ten Commandments. Here we are six months later. Exodus chapter 20, I'm going to read verses 3 through 7, which is commandments 1, 2, and 3. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, 
but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Keep Scripture open. You may have a seat. We're going to spend a little bit of time, and as you can see from the Scripture today, our goal is going to be to cover the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments. If you recall from last week when we spent time talking about verses 1 and 2, these words, the Ten Commandments, the laws, the commands, the statutes of God, Scriptures, verses 1 and 2 said, are all the words of God. Remember, we talked about how they, those words that God shared, those commandments, those laws, were rooted in the character of who God is, in his plans and his promises for his people who enter into a covenant with him. Every word, every requirement, every warning, every command is rooted in love. God's love for you. So look at verse 3. The first word that we start in the Ten Commandments in verse 3 says, you. Notice that this is not some kind of generic listing of, of commands. This is a personal note from God to his people. I pray today that you count yourself as God's people. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior yet, I would love, love, love the opportunity to share with you more about Jesus and pray that God uses this service, this message, his spirit to draw you to a desire to know more about Jesus. But if you count yourself as a child of God, God is personalizing these commands. He's speaking to you. Church, we have to be careful that we don't think that we don't just let this become a surface conversation. I want to encourage you to allow this to be from God to you. So we're going to talk about these three commandments for just a few moments. Verse 3, commandment 1 says, You shall have no other gods before me. In the Hebrew, if you go back and you reread this, it would sound a little bit like this, which is a little bit the same, but a lot different to me. In the Hebrew, it would say, There shall not be to you other gods before my face. There shall not be to you other gods before my face. What God is saying in that scripture is about three things I pulled out just from that statement, is you're not to have anything of a higher priority in your life than me. Anything. You cannot have, the second point, you cannot have another God, but I will know it. Do you know today that while you might come in here and you got your church duds on and you're in the right place for a Sunday morning and you count Jesus as your Savior and you would say, God is my absolute number one priority in all my life. Do you know that if that's not true, I don't know it. There might be people who know you that don't know it. But let me tell you, God said in his word, you shall not have any other gods before you to my face. God says, I'll know it. Right now, in the depths of your heart of who you are, the Spirit of God is going to show you anything in your life that is taking the priority that should be God's. But God will know it. And then think about it this way. God said, you shall not... There shall not be to you other gods before my face. When you have another God in your life, you know what you're doing? 
Since God knows about it, you are daring God to his face. You're going, I have somebody instead of you. Because if God knows it and you know it, then you're flat out daring God to move and work in your life. And the scripture tells us that God will not just sit back. Let me give you some practical statements about that. Do you know that you are to treat no person or thing like you do God? Now, when you read that, you're going, well, I don't. You see, I treat my wife with utmost respect, and I just treat God poorly just when I need him. That's not what it means. This means that nothing in your life should receive better attention and priority than God does in your life. God should be elevated above all or everything in your life. We're not to give honor or glory to someone or something else that belongs to God. God demands an exclusive relationship with you. You know what that means, right? That means it's just you and him. Nobody else, just you and him. God won't tolerate any other kind of relationship but an exclusive one. This first command, you shall have no other gods before me. If you get it wrong, you can't keep any of the rest of them. You're going, Jeff, are these just 10 commands and they're just in any order? They are not. God's word is so perfect, so infallible, so important, so critical for life that I believe that these commandments are not just the important 10 things that God tells us that he wants us to know about in a relationship with him, but that they're in the appropriate order. And if you get this one wrong, if you choose to have something else in your life higher than God, you don't have a chance to keep any of the rest of the commandments. Fail at this one, fail at all. But remember, God's commands are good for you. The cost of following other gods is you do not get God Almighty. But follow it this way. The reward of following no other gods is you get God Almighty. Notice there's an implied promise in this verse. You shall have no other gods before me. You know what God is saying? Not only is he saying you shouldn't have anything else before me, but what he's saying is, you get me. You get me. Church, we need to understand God is saying, you get me. And all that I bring, you get me. Having God, there is nothing better. He alone is the true God. By definition, he is self-existing, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. He is full of mercy and grace. He alone is able to deliver and bless those through his kingdom promises. I read many, many places, and I just want to say this. Do you know all other gods are fake? They're false. They're not real. Church, we need to understand that because by very definition, if God says, I am all-powerful, all-knowing, all places, he will not share anything he can't, or he would not be all-powerful. So we need to understand that getting God is a big deal. I limited myself, but I just want to share a few things with you. I severely limited what I could have done right here. And I want to give you homework. Maybe you take it up from where I left off. But let's just talk just a moment. Um, Kenan, who spoke a lot this weekend, 
He says, I know I speak fast, and when I get excited, I speak faster. And then when God starts to move, I speak faster. And I'm going, I do too. (laughs) And so what I'm getting ready to tell you is I'm getting ready to list a lot of characteristics from God. Unless you are like a shorthand guru, you're probably going to miss some of these. I'd be happy to give you verses if you miss one, so don't fret over it. Jeremiah in chapter 10 says, God, there is none like you. Psalm 136, you alone do great wonders. Isaiah 55, 9, God said, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Jeremiah said in chapter 32, your eyes are open to all the ways of men. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that God can do exceedingly, abundantly, more than we can think or ask. Again, in Jeremiah, it says, you made everything, and it goes on to say, and there is nothing too difficult for you. Church, maybe that's an encouragement to you right now because you're facing something that seems impossible. Let me tell you that if you will have no other gods before you and you get this God, one of the things this God's characteristics are is there is nothing, Scripture says, too difficult. That's Jeremiah 32, 17, in case somebody wants to write that down. First Timothy said, you are the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lamentations said that your loving kindness never ends. Lamentations 3 and your compassions never fail. Nehemiah said that you are a gracious and compassionate God. And I like this last statement that he put, comma, for you did not make an end of them. You know, there are times when God looks at me that I bet he just goes, oh, I just want to just put an end to him because he's just, he will not serve me like he should. And Nehemiah said, God, Your compassions are so great that even when you just want to pinch their little heads off, your love makes you not. First Peter said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, listen to this church, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you get God, you get that. Psalm 95 For the Lord is great, a great king above all gods. I told you I had to limit myself. You see, Scripture from one end to the other talks about the goodness and the greatness and the love and the power and the plans and the promises and the purposes of God. Prove me wrong. Here's what you do. Every day... Read three chapters. See if you don't find something in those three chapters as I talk about how good, how good God is. little pastor trick there, right? For some of you who want to prove me wrong, you'll be reading Scripture like crazy this week. This is the God we gain if we have an exclusive relationship with God. That's what he means. You'll have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not have any carved or graven images. You know, an image, I looked it up, is defined as a representation of the external form of a person or thing. Now, if we were to reread these verses beginning in verse 4, we would see that God says no images. 
no likeness of anything. And he goes on to be very specific to us. He says, if it's in the sky, no. If it's on the ground, no. If it's in the water, no. No images. I think God is teaching us about three things through this command. Number one, we cannot have an image by this command because of the vastness of Almighty God. I just shared with you so many traits about God, and the Scripture goes on and on. We are not to try to seek to create an image of Him. You see, what happens is when you take an image of anything, that image begins to wax old. I got lots of images of Addie. I'm ready. I can show you pictures from the night she was born to Friday. But do you know that every Friday when I go and see her again, the image that I last left her with, she's changed. God says, I don't want you to have an image of anything, even if it's the most Beautiful image of God that a person could create. He says, I don't want you to do that because I cannot be imaged. I cannot be represented. I cannot be contained. I am too much, too big. God doesn't want us to get the wrong perspective of him. We must view him appropriately. And Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Beads, crosses, pictures, statues, any image of God will not be able to represent him correctly. And so therefore, in order for us to not limit our full understanding of God, we are not to then have an image. It's not just walking in and going, you got a statue, get that out of here, everything's fine. No, this is a mind and a heart set about allowing God to be all that he is. The second thing he says by not having any carved or graven images is because we cannot be polytheistic. Now that's a big word for a believer in many gods. And you're going, Jeff, who's polytheistic? Lots and lots and lots of people are polytheistic. They have gods for this, that, and everything. Israel lived for over 400 years. They're just recently, they're within 90 days of leaving Egypt after 430 years in a culture that had a God for everything. Remember, we talked about this. And God was seeking to redeem them from that. God says, you are to be monotheistic. You are to have one God. And you're going, that's easy. We don't live in Egypt. We don't have all those other gods. Our culture today is full of other gods. Opportunities to draw us away from God, to cheapen our belief and understanding of God, to draw us away from him. And church, as I've said before, other gods aren't real. Their desire, think about this desire for just a second. False gods, Satan's creating them. These false gods are not desiring to create a following. These false gods are there to try to stop a following. Do you get what I said right there? These false gods, they don't care if you follow them, just as long as you don't follow Jesus. Church, we need to understand that there's no value in any other God except this one. And all the false gods, their only desire 
is to take you away from following Jesus. And then the truest way that we sometimes look at the scripture is that we are not to have any idols. Now, I walked around my house, I couldn't find any idols. No carved images that look like some kind of God. But the reality is, is when I walk through my house with God's understanding, walk through my life with God's understanding in my heart, it could be very different. You see, an idol is anything that takes the place of God in a person's life. It's more than a statue. We can idolize things. Our spouse, our kids, our career, our power, our position, sex, money, stuff, on and on and on it goes. The only thing I found out that you could not idolize too much was your granddaughter. (laughs) And then God pointed out to me very clearly, he said, and even her. Church, we need to understand that God says, no idols, nothing takes my place. An idol can get into your heart and begin to replace God. It's a slow process. I recently heard this definition of an idol that I want you to consider. Think about this. When you are in pain, you turn to your idol. When you are hurt, you turn to your idol. When you are in need, you turn to your idol. When you want to celebrate, you turn to your idol. Church, can I ask you, what are you turning to? That's the question that God wants us to ask ourselves to allow him to show us. I'm doing some small group classes with some of the men of the church, and one of the statements I've heard is, You want to know a prayer that God will always answer? Ask God, God, is there anything in my life you want to change? God will answer that prayer. He'll probably start by saying, get rid of that idol. I pray that the Holy Spirit of God is pointing out in your life and in your heart right now anything that might be an idol that might be becoming between you and God. Verse 5, God says, for I am a jealous God. Now, I want to be really clear. God is not jealous of idols. He's not jealous of images. He's not jealous of other gods. God is jealous for, for church, for you. He desires that you have and obtain everything that he desires for you. And that cannot happen, God knows, if you have other gods in your life, idols in your life, a limited view of God in your life. He desires great things for you. Do you desire what he desires for you? Now look at verses 5 and 6. I want to point out a couple of comparisons that really uh, challenged me this week. Verse 5 talks about um, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, And then verse 6 talks about those who love me. So there's a comparison in verses 5 and 6 between those that do not seek God and those that do and love God, those that sin and break this commandment and those that don't. And it's interesting. Look at the, it says that those who in iniquity and sin, God will visit that upon the third and fourth generations.
Having images, idols, other gods is sin. But God says, if you'll love me, I'll visit that with blessings for thousands. Now, I want to talk about that for just a second. Because God shares with us right here an important thing. I told you earlier that it started off in verse 3, you. God is sending you individual commands for you to develop in your relationship with him because he wants to have a relationship with you, and you are accountable for your relationship with him. But your sin is never just personal. That's what this teaches me right here. Think about this for a second. In this culture that Israel was in, it was not abnormal. It was very normal for three to four or more generations to live together. Therefore, when one chooses to bring an idol into their home or another god or to have images of things, that person, without thinking about it, is influencing the other generations in their family. It's there. Do not think that what you do, that what you serve, that what you believe, and the habits that you have are only personal. Church, another validation of Scripture that says it matters how you live. You see, if I do not serve God in my family, if I validate certain behaviors, certain beliefs, certain fringe areas into my life, my own habits... I'm therefore giving license to my children to tell them it's okay, to my granddaughter to tell her it's okay, and once it becomes involved in their lives and it's okay, it just continues to impact generations. And I started realizing, I said, wow, when I break these commands of God, it's not just me that's impacted. It's generations in my family that are being impacted. Now, many of us, we could talk about having the testimony time, and we could understand how our generations have impacted us. I've had conversations recently with people about that. Don't you agree it's true? You were impacted by what the people who raised you believed. And you either look back and you go, I am so thankful that they led me to Jesus, or you're going, if they would have only raised me right. I wouldn't be struggling like I do right now. Church, that's a true statement. So when Scripture says, God says, when you break these commands, I will visit this to the third and fourth generation, that's not God going after them. God's saying what you're doing is going after them. And I'm just going to let it happen. It creates predispositions, attitudes, behaviors. We could have all kinds of conversations where alcoholics... Breed alcoholics and drug addicts bring drug addicts. Church, we need to understand that Christians breed Christians if they live that life fully before God. Do bad, pass along bad. But I told you it was a comparison. Look what God says to those who love him. He says, showing mercy to thousands. Now, there's a word missing right there, but we have to keep it in context. Church, this is not three to four generations compared to thousands of people, we must keep this in the same currency of the context that it's in, that this is thousands of generations. And just in case you don't buy that, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, I'm already there. I just want to read you 
Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 9, which is also by Moses, recounting the history. Verses 6 through 9 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than the other people, for you were the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep his oath, which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Verse 9, therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And I'm going, so if I live my life absolutely yielded to God, does my family benefit? It's predisposed to benefiting from God, absolutely. Every person in my lineage still has an op- a, a choice to make. But boy, they sure are leaning pretty heavily toward God. Doing bad passes along bad. Doing good passes along good to many, many many, many more. What are you doing to your family? What are you doing to the world? Look at commandment three in verse seven. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, most people think that taking the Lord's name in vain is either profanity or taking an oath in his name and not fulfilling it. Now, those are accurate, but that's not it. The Lord's name is not a label we use to distinguish him, but much, much more. His name represents his person, his authority, his glory. We spent time on Wednesday nights going through a a series on the names of God. Elohim, Adonai, Jehovah. All of these names of God release and help us understand the characteristics of God, the nature of God, the relationship that God desires to have with us. It says we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. Well, I looked up the word vain. It means void of real worth, to misuse, to take for nothing, or to make empty. In its broadest application, I think we must guard against three things. One, improper use of the Lord's name. Now, this could be frivolous. You want to understand frivolous? Turn on HGTV, go to House Hunters, or go to any kind of flip home that you can see, and then when they reveal it to them, the number one phrase in all of TV is, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. You hear it, right? It's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. But we misuse. That's a frivolous use of God's name. It doesn't add any value to their enjoyment or their appreciation of what they were given. It's a misuse. Anger, swearing, commitments. Those are all unnecessary, improper uses of the name of God. Second, forgery. You're going, forgery? How'd forgery get into this? Well, forgery is attributing things to God that are not his will. Like what we believe and what we say and how we live. Claiming God's approval 
for something in our life when it is not approved by God. I had this finished up, and then I walked in here. It was on Friday night, and Kenan said, he brought it up in his welcome, talking about the commandments. God really has a message for us here. But he said, you know, claiming to live for Christ, but not living for Christ, that's a forgery. You're claiming God's name, but you're not living into it. You're making it empty by the way that you live. Commandment issue. And finally, my own kids and sometimes youth I've had impact on and probably you in just a minute aren't going to like what I'm getting ready to say. Substitution words. You're going, what's a substitution word? Well, we try to clean up because we Christians, we know that, oh, my God, is not right. So when somebody redoes our home and they let us in, we have to clean it up, and all we say is, oh, my gosh. Right? We substitute something in, but you know what happens? The people that hear us speak, they are smart people, and they know what we've substituted for, and what they hear is the word we shouldn't have said, but we put it in their minds anyway. The same is true when you substitute any other language, any other words. I don't want to give you an example because I don't want to give you one of those words. But you guys know what I'm talking about here when we try to clean it up. What we don't do is we're giving them a fill in the blank and when they hear it, they substitute the word. Church, we ought to be able to speak more completely more fully. We are smart people. We ought to be able to come up with real words that fit in real sentences. And all this week, I've been studying these three commandments, and there was just this burden on me. I asked myself, why would people want to worship a false god? Why? Here's the answer that I believe is because they've never heard of the real God. They've never heard the gospel. They do not know of Jesus being ready to redeem and forgive them. They've never been saved. So I want to, in the minutes that we have left, attempt to tie these three commands into one picture for us. I hope you'll let me do that. Church, we know that the Ten Commandments are clearly an echo of the will of God for man. God is revealing himself, and he says, this is how I want you to live. It's God's desire for man. They are part of the covenant that God has created with his people. God originally created a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and when he created that covenant with Abraham, in chapter 12, verse 3, he said, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. And you're going, Jeff, I get that. Church, we know that that's an allusion to Abraham's lineage will eventually bring Jesus into the picture. So from Abraham to us is the lineage of Jesus passing right through Israel. God knows people, and he wants them, John 3, 16, to know him. God loves them. We also know that it's God's will, based upon 2 Peter 3, 9 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, that it is God's will that all men come to salvation and that none perish. And we also know that those of us who are saved have been told by Jesus to go and make disciples, to share the good news, the gospel. It's our responsibility. The Great Commission is your responsibility. You're going, Jeff, 
I think we can easily agree that the the series that I just painted is all pretty clear. We know these things. But check this out. I'm going. I've got it marked already because I knew I was going to need to move on here just a little bit. But in Isaiah chapter 42, write this note down. Let me read Isaiah chapter 42, verses 5 through 9. Many, many years later. And yes, if you're in the chronological class, I found out that this is what God's been, you were reading this week too. It's pretty cool. It says, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles. Don't miss that church to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. In Isaiah, God is saying, not only did he recount the, the commandments we just talked about, but he said, you're my witnesses to what's coming, to the Gentiles, to people that did not hear the laws, statutes, and the commands of God. Now I'm in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8. There's a big aha coming, church. Isaiah 44, 6 says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. I have not told, have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Again, Scripture says, you children of God are in this covenant. You are my witnesses. One final place, Isaiah chapter 45. I just got to read this to you, verses 21 and 22. Isaiah 45, 21 says, Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. When we sincerely desire to keep these commands, we position God in front of people who do not yet know him. We are witnesses when we struggle, when we fail at keeping these commands, when we are inconsistent, when we disobey, we confuse the people in this world that we're witnessing to. I know that we're in a moment here, and I'm going to beg your moment because I got to read you a couple verses. Psalm 115, verse 1 says this, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to you, your name, give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? 
Scripture says when we don't live faithfully to these commandments, we cause those who don't know Jesus to go, who is this guy? But I won't sleep if I don't share this with you. O Israel, trust in the Lord. This is verse 9. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Now, I told you I'm not the grammar person. You guys know this. But did you notice that? He talks to Israel and then refers to their, somebody else. Did you catch that? Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He, the Lord, is their help and their shield. Does it again in verse 10 and again in verse 11. Scripture says that it is we, when we trust in God, we are used by God to help people come to know that he is their hope, their peace, their strength, their everything. And so if we as a church want to see God bring revival, want to see God change our families, change our church, change our community. You know how we do it? God and God only. No images, no limitations of God. And make sure that we use his name in a way that is glorifying unto him. There are thousands and thousands of generations, Scripture teaches us, awaiting our faithful lives so that they can come to know the love of God. Amen?